We don't really have language around that. You know, how do we communicate that we're making progress in a way that's meaningful to customers and doesn't sort of also sound like a cop-out? We need to get a better sense of which specific things are impacted beyond sort of what's really immediately obvious. And we need to figure out what just happened, right? Everything just went down, what just happened? Is sort of the the 1.30 in the morning experience. And really, like, the honest answer is that it was on me to set those priorities. Hi, my name's Nora, his name is Niall, and together... We are Getting There. This is an irregular podcast where we discuss incident management, safety science, reliability engineering, and operations in the headlines and beyond. We are quite literally figuring this stuff out. We are getting there, implying we're not quite there yet. Instead, we're on a journey exploring this stuff together. Getting There is brought to you by Heavybit, the leading investor in developer-first startups. For more information, visit heavybit.com. Welcome, everyone, to the seventh podcast for Getting There. In addition to Nora and myself, I'm pleased to announce that we have a special guest this time, who is Laura Divizine of Datadog, and we are examining the Datadog essentially global outage of early March in 2023. So I wanted to say, first of all, personal thanks to Laura for agreeing to come on the show and talk about this. Uh, Obviously, a, a a thorny issue, the wound is still slightly open, uh, although it's been mostly stitched back together by now, I'm sure. Uh, and thanks to Datadog and the company powers that be for agreeing to do this, because obviously this is not something that everyone does, and we very much value that transparency. So thanks to all involved uh, who came to that decision. And also, I suppose, to continue my usual rant, thanks to the people who do this kind of work for a living or as part of a wider job, because it is often thankless and difficult. Anyway, we will get into that more as we as we go on. Nora, I wonder if it might be possible to explain a little bit about what Datadog is and why people use it and why they care and so on. Yeah, so Datadog has been around since 2010. It is very interesting to be talking about the Datadog incident on this podcast um, because the primary users of Datadog sit within our world. And so I think we have a special interest in the incident reviews and reports that come out of a company where their primary user is SRE folks, observability specialists, folks that are likely writing post-incident reports for their company. So Datadog is an observability service for uh, cloud-scale applications, providing monitoring of servers, databases, tools, and services through a SaaS-based and analytics platform. And they've been pervasive throughout the industry. Uh, folks that kind of operate in our worlds, everyone knows who Datadog is. Everyone has probably used it at some point. And Laura, I would love if you could kick us off with a little bit of a background on the company. And, and one thing to add from Niall's intro is Laura was actually uh, the first incident responder on the scene. So we'll get into the details of the incident in a second. But Laura, could you give me a little bit of background on Datadog that folks you know might not know that are not working at the company? Yeah, absolutely. So I think particularly for this incident, a couple of things are really relevant. We run a whole suite of products. So it's all one integrated platform and you see it through a single pane of glass, but it is of course a number of different products that track your sort of more traditional metrics, your logs, we've got traces, we've got a bunch of profiling information, we have security products. There's there's a, a whole suite of products involved in Datadog. And we run those in isolated regions. So we've sort of taken on that same model that the cloud providers have, that we run isolated regions and they are fully isolated from each other. So we're running them on cloud provider regions that are isolated. We're running on multiple cloud providers to to give those and they are totally separated stacks. So they don't share any infrastructure. They don't share any data storage and that will become relevant to this incident pretty quickly. I think that those are kind of the most important pieces to know about the internals. Absolutely. And then, you know, Datadog did not start that way with this whole suite of product offerings, right? It just kind of started as a, as a single product offering and then sort of expanded from there. Is that right? 
Yeah, exactly. As as a lot of companies do, right? It, it started with one product and there was a lot of market for it. And then it's built some new things and it's acquired some things as it's grown. Nice. Awesome. Niall, do you want to give us a little bit of background about the incident before we dive into it? And folks that are listening, um, Laura is our first guest on this podcast. And you know, we hope to actually have many more guests um, coming and talking about the incidents and talking with us about them, what they experienced, what they learned, what they felt. But I just want to give a little bit of a background on how we'll be chatting with Laura today. Um, we're not going to be doing this like standard interview where we're bombarding her with questions and um, not giving her a lot of time to reflect. We're going to be doing a cognitive style interview that's going to encourage her to recreate what was happening for her and for her colleagues during the time of the incident, um, using some retrieval cues to um, trigger memory. And, um, you know, Laura is not sitting with all the details of the incident sitting in front of her face right now. I'm sure she's done a million other things since the incident. And so a lot of the questions that we're going to be asking and the ways we're going to be asking them are meant to help her remember what happened and give us some of the details about how things unfolded, how folks coordinated, what was hard, what felt good, things like that. So with that being said, um, Niall, could you give us a little bit of background on the incident? Yeah, I can I can talk a little bit about this and probably less convincingly than Laura can, but we'll, we'll get into those details in a moment. I suppose the things that I can say are primarily the things that we could say from the outside world, right? Like, what can we tell about Datadog given we are looking at it from very far away through big telescopes or whatever, right? So I suppose there's a couple of things we could say. First one is that it appears to have been like a widely notable outage. Like, a lot of people knew about this one. And it's interesting because it even made its way into for example, there's a, a chap who, who does a, a newsletter called The Pragmatic Engineer, um, Gurgley, I think is his, his first name. And he, he talked about the Datadog outage uh, a fair bit uh, because it had impacted so many of the people that he tends to talk to in his network right now. He, he somehow obtained access to, to some kind of post-mortem uh, or post-incident report before it actually was fully publicized. So he did a whole piece on what he thought happened and the bits where he has some evidential things to back up what he says are apparently cool and, and the bits where he's guessing are apparently less cool. But it's been interesting that the impact of the incident has been so broadly felt throughout the industry that there's this much attention to it. And I suppose if we're looking for kind of uh, independent metrics, subjective metrics as to how much this impact costs in the broadest sense, I think that it has been a public statement on a call by one of your C-suites that it's $5 million or thereabouts. So that is uh, notable for two reasons. First of all, okay, it's a large number. I think I've been involved in production incidents which were larger in terms of loss. Uh, so it's a large number, but it's not like unprecedented in, in the industry at all. Uh, but the, the second piece is that we don't often get in the industry widely shared numbers which are related to incident impact and that it is in and of itself uh, notable. So again, kudos to Datadog for talking about that. There's obviously a bunch of indirect impacts as well, right? Because um, not just the unfortunate reality of customer churn and so on and so forth, but also behind the scenes, there's a bunch of people who were both on the Datadog side and on the non-Datadog side saying, this couldn't possibly fail, or like slightly more accurately, this will fail someday, but probably not tomorrow. And now this work is increasing in importance and there's a lot of scurrying going on behind the scenes in order to manage this risk. And again, something that we only see from the outside is when you go to the, the Datadog website to look for new jobs that have been created since the 8th of March, you see a list of jobs which are uh, around kind of risk management and so on and so forth. Uh, more SREs, that's clearly what we need. We did have some of those before. <laughs> yes, we, we had some of them before. We have some more now, or shortly, uh, but we definitely had some of them before. So I think 
I mean, without beating around the bush or being disrespectful or whatever, there's clearly some kind of reputational damage. There's clearly some kind of um, financial damage, etc. It's obviously a terrible situation to be thrust into. Um, but that's what we know publicly. One thing that I think there was a lot of comments on is that, you know, the incident happened on March 8th, but there was not a public incident review fully published until May 16th. And I want to briefly comment on that because when there is a huge incident that happens in a company, it is so hard and so time consuming to properly investigate and know all the details of what happened. And when you're being pressured publicly to produce something in a short period of time, it actually limits the efforts that the engineers can put in to learn themselves. And so John Allspa has actually written a lot about the multiple audiences of incident reviews and how they can sometimes contradict with each other. But like if you're telling the engineers um, to write and learn about something in a way that is going to make the customers feel confident and happy, they're not going to be writing and learning about it and all the details that they can use in order to gain more expertise, inform their job better, inform future hires better. So I just want to comment, like, I don't think it's necessarily bad when a company takes a couple months to publish a public-facing incident review. I actually think it's good because it gives those employees time and space. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're exactly right about the reason for the delay in posting something more publicly. Um, I do want to point out, and this is where the stuff from the pragmatic engineer came from as well, we did have an incident report that we shared with customers, actually even during the incident while it was still ongoing. Yeah. And then we wrote up some additional things and, and shared that with essentially anyone we had an ongoing business relationship with. So if you were a customer, any customer, not customers of a particular size or anything like that, if you were talking to a salesperson and you asked, we would send you essentially what's already up on the website. But what we were doing was really exactly what you've implied. We were taking the time to sit down with engineers and not so much like what happened. We we had largely that put together, but how could we string this together into a single coherent timeline? We eventually sort of gave up on that, to be perfectly honest. There's just too much. Yeah. But also really taking the time to digest what we learned, right? It's really easy in an incident with this much impact to expect that it needs to be, you know, you've got to redesign all your systems to handle this exact problem. And so taking the time to take a step back and say, what do we really need to do to make our systems better? And what lessons are valuable to people outside of Datadog? And what can we include in that? So there is obviously the write-up that's up on the website right this second later today or possibly tomorrow, depending on the editing process, we've got a series of deep dives actually that are going to be going up. So the first one is going to be on the very specific details of exactly how Kubernetes and Ubuntu broke. There's there's like 12 IP tables in the article. I don't I don't do networking. <laughs> but there's there's a bunch of very, very specific details of exactly what we understand to have broken for us. I'm actually working on a write-up kind of in the same vein as what we're going to be talking about, about how did we respond as a company. And then we're going to have at least one about some of our sort of internal like product systems and how that specific one broke because we broke and how we fixed it because there's just so much that there's no way to, to cover it in a single blog post. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I, I love that. I'm very much looking forward to that. So I'm going to just briefly read the first couple paragraphs of the public incident report that was shared last week, uh, not the one that was necessarily shared with customers. So uh, it says, starting on March 8th, 2023 at um, 603 UTC, we experienced an outage that affected US1, EU1, US3, US4, and US5 Datadog regions across all services. When the incident started, users could not access the platform or various Datadog services via the browser or APIs, and monitors were unavailable and not alerting. Data ingestion for various services was also impacted at the beginning of the outage. So it mentions that you were first alerted to the issue by your internal monitoring uh, three minutes after the trigger of the first faulty upgrade uh, that happened at 0600 UTC. Uh, declared a high severity incident 18 minutes into the investigation. So I have a couple questions there. I think my first question, Laura, is how did you get involved? Um, so it mentions that, you know, first alerted to the issue by internal monitoring 
Um, can you tell me a little bit about your story and what happened at those beginning moments of the incident? Yeah, absolutely. So like any responsible engineers, we have some, like most of our monitoring is built on Datadog. But as responsible engineers, we do not monitor Datadog exclusively using the same infrastructure stack as Datadog. So the piece of monitoring that actually went off for this incident is our out-of-band shares no infrastructure monitoring. That team got alerted, got online. It was about one in the morning for them. So that team got alerted, got online, very quickly saw this was substantial impact, escalated it to a severity that automatically pages our sort of incident response on-call rotation. So we have our engineers on call in general as a you build it, you run it kind of system. So the team that happens to own our out-of-band monitoring is also the team that owns our monitoring in general. So they own alerting in particular. But when incidents are large, we've got a rotation of more senior engineers who get pulled in to do incident command for those. So that's the rotation that I'm on. Mm. Because our tooling was impacted, it took them around 10 minutes to open an incident and escalate it to me. And then because it was one in the morning, I had literally just gone to bed. It took me a couple of minutes to get online. And this is, I remember this very, very vividly. I got online. The first thing in the Slack channel is alerting seems to be down in all sites, followed by, I think this might be a SEV1. And my response was, this is a SEV1. Let me get a status page. W- wakes up. Yeah, this is one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, that because that's the first thing that you can do, right? But but at that moment, all that I knew was our alerting is down in all sites. In all sites, is that what you said? Yeah, on all our sites, all our all our. I think we call them sites externally. Okay. And what what do sites mean? Can you describe that a little bit more? Yeah. So sites are those isolated Datadog regions. Okay. So that's that's what that US one, EU one, US three, that whole list is. So each of those is runs on a cloud provider region and is a totally isolated stack of Datadog. Okay. What was that like to to wake up to? So it's one in the morning. Well, I didn't wake up. I'm a I'm a late night person. So I had literally just gone to bed. Okay. Well, that's good. But yeah, I mean, it was surprising. <laughs> yeah. You know, like. I think for me, a lot of my first response to getting a page is, oh no, I have to go deal with this. What a pain. I was about to go to sleep. Like it's it's more of an annoyance than even a, a you know stress response. It's a, this is very irritating. I had other things to do. Hmm. So that was sort of my first response. And then once I was in the incident, you know, I was very focused just on what needed to happen. Yeah. It was, you know, this is obviously a pretty big incident. I need to get some kind of notification out to customers. I need to get other people involved in the response. Okay. So those were all your responsibilities in that moment, getting the status page up, getting kind of um, awareness on what everyone was doing, what had happened so far, Yep. getting responses out to customers. And then are you also orchestrating the folks that are responding? Uh, somewhat. So I become the the engineering decision maker, like like any typical engineering uh, incident commander. You know, what is our priority? What what do we need to do next? All of those kinds of things. But obviously, or possibly obviously, I don't know how to fix it. I don't even know what's broken at this stage, and I'm not really in charge of that so much as just making sure that people have the right priority set for their engineering needs. Okay. And how many people were in the incident channel when you joined? I, I were you using Slack to coordinate? Yeah, so we mostly use Slack and Zoom to coordinate. When I joined it, I think there were three people in the channel. Okay. And what were the roles of everyone? So you were you were on call, and then what were the other? Yeah, so I was the on-call incident commander. Um, at the moment that I joined it, we had uh, somebody there who was just the person who got paged by the automation. Mm-hmm. And I believe we had, I'm pretty sure we had somebody from our customer support team at that point. Okay. So I'm reading in the incident report, you know, our incident response team had an emergency operations center of 10 senior leaders, 70 local incident commanders, and a pool of 450 to 750 incident responders active throughout the incident. How many employees does Datadog have? What what percentage (laughs) of employees were involved in this incident? Yeah. Well, so that responder list is just the engineers list. It doesn't include support. Oh, so it's even bigger. We employ around 2,000 engineers. I don't think that the number is totally public, and I don't know it anyway, but it's it's around 2,000 engineers. Uh, is, is that kind of nine senior leaders too many for coordination, or what was the yeah. toe-stepping? 
So, so there wasn't toe stepping because what there actually was, um, no, that's a, that's a totally reasonable question. The reason that there's so many people involved is partially just the length of the incident. Because we were on active response, this incident took us a very long time to repair and recover from. We were on active response for almost 48 hours. And most of the, that nine senior leaders and 70 people and, and, and all of that, that's really expressing the fact that we handed off throughout. So most of the time during the incident, we had two or three people on at any given time as sort of engineering leadership. So in that sort of incident command role for what are we trying to resolve at this instant, keeping on top of getting status updates out to the, the best of our ability, things along those lines. And then typically one or two actual senior executives at any given time who were primarily engaged in talking to customers. I just love that you all put these bits of coordination uh, in your post-incident doc. I feel like I don't see that enough in the tech industry. When an incident report gets published uh, and a bunch of folks want to know about it, like I, I am sure you all felt the pressure on Twitter from blog posts to get something out to explain <laughs> in all details what happened. And that's like, I feel like what people think they want to know, but there are parts of it like this that it's like, there was a lot of coordination efforts involved and it was global for customers, but it was also global for employees. So you must've been working with other incident commanders across a lot of different time zones as well. Was that correct? Yeah. Although we are, we are global, we are mostly in either the sort of New York time zone or in Paris time plus or minus an hour. So it wasn't as many time zones as you might think. We don't really have engineers uh, who work in, in an APAC time zone. We do have a few engineers on the West Coast, but it's less common. I see. Okay. But yes, there, there were a lot of a lot of people to work with. Was there only one Slack channel going for this incident? So you mentioned you primarily use Slack and Zoom. Did you have a Slack channel and Zoom up? Were there separate threads going on? Um, how did that communication process escalate? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so we didn't even have a Zoom when I joined. That was one of the first things that I did was make a Zoom for the incident. We always open a Slack channel automatically for every incident. So there's a Slack channel just for the incident. The Datadog incident app is actually how we coordinate that. And then we were in the middle of dog fooding, a product that I think will be out soon uh, for customers within the incident app, which is around workstream management that allows you to designate a work stream for an incident and opens a Slack channel that is specific to that work stream and coordinates with the broader incident. And it sure was useful. <laughs> We've had a couple of different people try to count the Slack channels that were involved in the incident. I think our official count is 73. Wow. That's a lot. <laughs> the main incident Slack channel had, uh, I think at peak, about 1,300 people in it. And so it looks like about... 450 to 750 of those were actively responding. Would you say that was it? And then were the rest kind of? Yeah, we're, we're engineers trying to fix it. I mean, that's obviously an estimate, right? You can, you can just tell from the range of it. You know, how, how do you say that somebody is an engineer who was actively responding versus somebody who had wandered into look versus somebody from support? It's hard to make those, those specific distinctions. So our best guess is about that many engineers. So speaking for myself, you know, reflecting on my, my personal experience in analogous situations, I'm going 1,300 people in a Slack channel sounds like it's not necessarily a recipe for quick convergence to a set of contributing factors or a common understanding of what's at stake, etc. How was your experience with that? So obviously this, this didn't grow immediately, right? We didn't have 1,300 people online at one in the morning. So the very first thing that happened was I paged in a couple of other teams. I started working with the people who had been initially paged, and we tried to get a sense of what is the impact, right? Is it just our alerting that's down, or are we seeing other symptoms? Because, of course, the reason that alerting is usually down is that other things are affected. And so we got, as quickly as we could, a quick assessment of sort of what was broken and tried to figure out what we would get posted for customers right away, and then started basically theory crafting, right? Here's the set of priorities of what we need to do. We need to get a better sense of which specific things are impacted beyond sort of what's really immediately obvious. 
and we need to figure out what just happened, right? Everything just went down, what just happened, is sort of the the 1.30 in the morning experience. And really, like, the honest answer is that it was on me to set those priorities and to sort of coordinate the room around that. In general, we train all of our engineers on incident response procedures and good incident management. And so all of our engineers know that there's an incident commander in the room and it's their job to set priorities. Mm-hmm. And it is not up for debate, right? If you have concerns, if you have things that you need to raise, if you have blockers, if there's, you know, please do all of that. But if you disagree with the direction of something, but think that there's nothing that can go terribly wrong, you just wish you could do it a different way. Not a conversation we get to have right now. So Laura, you mentioned that you um, first pulled a couple teams in. Who were the couple teams that you pulled in? Yeah. So really there were two sort of initial priorities, right? One is how down are we really? Mm-hmm. Just, just how extensive is the impact? And the other is what broke? So in terms of sort of how down are we really, the question becomes we can, we can see that the website is not loading in at least some sites. We know that our alerting is down. We know the dashboards aren't loading. So that's, that's all pretty obvious. We can assess that as any engineer. The question that becomes really relevant here is, is our intake impacted, right? We don't know, we can't see. And the monitoring that we would use to determine that is currently down. And so I paged in the teams that were able to do that assessment or in theory able to do that assessment, although what we found was that they couldn't really tell us how intake might or might not be impacted until they had a little bit more of an idea of what the cause was. And then really it was it was almost an exercise in, in suspension of disbelief, right? I've, I've mentioned a couple of times, we run fully isolated stacks. There is no shared infrastructure. Everything went down all at once. Well, that's not supposed to be possible. And so which teams might this be? So we paged in our networking team because maybe there's this networking thing we don't understand. We paged in our compute resources team, the team that runs our Kubernetes nodes because some of the symptoms that we were seeing seemed maybe Kubernetes nodes related. And we actually paged in the team that runs the web UI, not because we thought that, that the problem was only the web UI, but because they'd made the last configuration change. And we thought maybe our configurations had responded globally in some way. Almost surprised you didn't page in DNS team. Uh, oh, we did, we did. That's the did. networking team. Uh, all right, okay, fair enough. Uh, so you have you have a struggle, a, a, a kind of a, a cognitive modeling struggle where you're going. Could it possibly be this bad? Oh, yeah, actually, it could be. And you're going through various different stages of establishing. Oh, yes, we haven't hit the bottom yet on this. Yeah. So at some point you actually, you do bottom out and you go, oh yeah, actually this is a very serious uh, kind of global or semi-global thing. What happens then? So I, I, I put in that we sort of officially said it was serious and very global, like in the official timeline, about 1.30 my time. So we knew it was bad pretty quickly. In terms of sort of how bad, it really took us almost two hours, I think, to, to understand that what had happened was an impact to our actual computing infrastructure, the Kubernetes nodes that we run, and that it was a a single point impact, that it wasn't sort of an ongoing problem. It was that something had gone wrong and now it had stopped going wrong, and we just had the mess to clean up. I'm going to say it was around 3.30 in the morning that we sort of came to that, that realization that that was what had happened, and that now we, we just needed to repair all of that. So that was sort of where that process happened. I don't know. I was I was honestly so busy. I never really sort of hit like a rock bottom, oh no, this is really, really bad kind of moment. It was all it was all so much, yeah, it was it was so much shoveling of of let's let's get people involved, let's make sure we're on the same page. People keep joining the incident response and need to be given a summary of what's going on. You know, I pulled in several other responders from our major incident rotation to start taking on some of that work. There was a VP on the call pretty quickly, starting around about 140 or so, who was, you know, also helping to coordinate some of that, helping to figure out what kind of messaging we wanted to get out on the status page. Were we prioritizing all the right things in terms of questioning our impact? You know, all of that. And so once once we'd sort of gotten to the point that we understood that it was a point in time impact to our Kubernetes infrastructure, we get to what do we repair first? Mm-hmm. Because 
again, when you run these totally isolated stacks, yes, you shouldn't have global events take them out, but it also means you can't repair them globally. They have to be repaired one at a time. Where do we start? Yeah. And we we made the call to start if, with our with our EU stack because it was starting to be morning there. That seemed like the most sensible place to start. In retrospect, that may or may not have been our best decision. Yeah, tell me about what, how morning played a role in um, deciding to start there. Yeah, I mean, so obviously Datadog is useful to customers in two sort of broad ways, right? One way in that you get your alerting from Datadog if something's broken, and that matters regardless of what time of day it is. But one in that you like to look at your dashboards while you work or while you release things or whatever. And so if our customers are actually during business hours, it matters more to them that Datadog is down in a lot of cases. Mm-hmm. And so we wanted to repair things for the customers for whom it was business hours first. It turned out, and again, this, this is something that, that impacted us a bunch during those first few hours, we run these regions on different cloud providers, right? These sites are different cloud providers and different cloud providers actually responded to the initial impact differently. And so we believed that our EU site was more impacted early on because of the cloud provider response than our US site. And it was more obviously broken, but faster to repair. And I think it was very hard to keep track of the fact that there were different impacts in different locations early on. And so we we really focused on that EU site and didn't realize what the problems were in our US site until somewhat later in the incident. Was the initial assumption that it was the same impacts? Yeah, I think the initial assumption was that everything would be broken in the same way, right? It, it all started at the same time. Mm-hmm. So we would expect that it was all the same problem. And indeed, it was all the same underlying root cause. So, so just sort of, so that we're not sort of beating around this, the underlying root cause of the problem is that in version 2204 of Ubuntu, there was a change made to systemd network D, mm-hmm. where when it is restarted, it deletes IP tables rules that it doesn't know about. Ah. We use Cilium to manage our Kubernetes network connectivity. And when Cilium installs itself on a Kubernetes node, it rewrites the IP tables in order to allow for routing to pods. An automated security update was made by Ubuntu that in no way was a problem in and of itself. But because the security update was to systemd, it restarted systemd. That caused uh, the IP tables rules to be deleted that Cilium had put in. And because of the specifics of how Cilium makes those IP table rules, it eliminated network connectivity, all network connectivity to the host. So it deletes IP table rules that it doesn't know about. How is, it was Cilium you said? Yeah. How is it communicating back with what the new rules are? Like, was it, was it a particular timing thing or? Right. So system D doesn't communicate back the new rules. It, system D is, is part of the, the actual Ubuntu. So what happens is when you create a node, mm-hmm. it starts with the default Ubuntu rules for IP routing. And then when we install Cilium in order to actually integrate it as part of a Kubernetes instance and run pods on it, Cilium deletes some of those rules, writes new ones in order to manage the routing. And when systemd then restarts, it doesn't recognize Cilium's rules. And so it deletes all of those rules and you wind up with no networking to your host. Which is generally acknowledged to be a bad thing. Uh, so <laughs> there's a, a similar uh, outage I experienced in my past uh, in a previous employer where the database that stores the giant list of permissions for everyone to edit their data is updated by this script and the script wakes up, looks at the delta in the new permissions it's supposed to apply and just goes through the host going, okay, drop these, add these, etc. Except when it turns out that the delta that you need to apply is larger than the buffer that the database can handle. So you do the drop 
And okay, no one has permissions now. And then you try and apply the new ones and you seg fault in the middle of the application. And then you try and make your connection back again, except you've just dropped your own permissions to add yourself so you can't have. So rolling fleet death is very much the, the theme here. Yeah, absolutely. In this case, nothing's even trying to add those back in. But that's that's fundamentally what happened. So we had these Ubuntu default security updates on, which certainly none of us in the initial call realized we had. Mm. Obviously, folks knew about them. We knew that we had them. We've been running them since 2010. They've never presented a risk before. They're not how we typically do security updates. We do actual like long-term node management and all of those things, but we still had these ones on. That is also a, a kind of inherently interesting question as well. Going back to theory of the crime piece, you've realized it's a large problem. You've realized it's something to do with Kubernetes. So how did you connect that? How did you end up connecting that with the updates? So we were almost 10 hours into the incident when somebody finally found that that was the problem. We were very clear pretty early on, like I said, comparatively early. And anytime you, it's like two hours before you even have a way forward, that feels terrible. But we did understand relatively early on that something took down a bunch of our Kubernetes nodes. And now we need to fix it. And we sort of didn't worry about what had taken them down for a while. Mm. But one of the folks on our compute team, after some of that initial repair work had been done, went and started just digging through logs of impacted nodes and found that an apt update had been run at the culprit time and said, hey, we run that every night. And then eventually found that that was what was happening. Good sleuthing. How many theories were kind of going around before that person brought that up 10 hours in? Like, what were other people looking at? Yeah, I think we were honestly so baffled that we didn't have a lot of theories. You know, there were some some short-lived theories around it being something besides our Kubernetes infrastructure. There were definitely, like, I thought for a while that perhaps we had seen some kind of cascading failure because we saw a lot of nodes trying to restart and not successfully doing so, or maybe not successfully doing so. It was a little bit hard to tell. Again, all of our monitoring was impacted by this incident. So, you know, I, I theorized that maybe there was some kind of cascading failure and we needed to sort of back off on a bunch of systems to see if we could get a recovery there. But that was only really live as a theory for 20 or 30 minutes. And we saw that nothing continued to kill new nodes. So that couldn't have been it. You know, there was, in this case, I think that it was so unexpected and so, so surprising that we had something that could do this, that we didn't have a lot of theories going around about what it was without any evidence. I mean, that, that makes a lot of sense. If I'm thinking about things that could cause total fleet death in this way, I'm running through, you know, networking, DNS, security, like, has there been an exploit cascading failures? It's a long... Yeah, we absolutely did page in our security team, to be clear. Some, sometime around two, so so around an hour in, somebody pointed out, oh, we should probably get the security team involved, and then we did. Absolutely. And in a funny way, it was security, except not quite in the way we would be thinking of it in that sense. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, it, it's close, maybe not the bottom of the list, but it's certainly in kind of mid-tier or lower tier that I'm going system updates... Because, of course, in a sense, one presumes that system updates like this are tested by the OS provider, are rolled out to other people, and if it's going to be a major issue, it's caught there before it gets to you. Absolutely. Well, and the system update itself was fine, right? It was this very specific interaction of the restart of systemd with the Cilium rule rewrite that burned us. So nothing about the system update itself was a problem. You mentioned that these system updates have been on literally since 2010 and have never led to an issue. Do you know um, some of the, the history of that, like how they got turned on, how they stayed on? Yeah, they're on by default. There's, there's a default Ubuntu configuration that downloads um, system updates on a rolling, uh, a randomly chosen 12-hour window for your hosts and then automatically runs them over the course of an hour 
configured to 6 a.m. UTC. That's just the default Ubuntu configuration. Okay. So you kind of just left the default on and then yeah. it was sort of working as expected until it, until it wasn't, essentially. Exactly. Exactly. You know, we back in 2010, when it was a very small company doing small things, we left the default on and it had never caused us a problem as we grew, as we moved on to Kubernetes, as we expanded to multiple locations and, and multiple sites and multiple cloud providers. It had never caused a problem, so we had just left it as it was. Narayan Desai of, of, of Google now, but uh, many other things previously, says that it's, it's unexpected correlation that gets you. And it's the, the things you, you discover that systems have some relationship or, or correlation that you weren't necessarily expecting. And sometimes it's as simple as, okay, at six o'clock UTC, everyone's going to wake up and apply everything that's in that directory. Hope you're ready for that. Or sometimes it's, oh, it turns out that this system has a critical latency cliff when it goes over such and such a degree of throughput, et cetera. Yep. So I presume that you are doing the equivalent of find slash minus type F minus exact grep IP tools star uh, or open curly, close curly for, for everything now. What is the, the process for restoration? Because earlier on, you were talking about how, well, it's one thing to find out how the crime happened, but like, what are you doing to uh, remediate it? And you also spoke about the, the role of the cloud providers in this. And I think there's some nuance here to how that plays out. Can you talk about that a bit? Yeah, so there's, there's actually quite a bit of nuance because if we use a slightly different version of Cilium for different cloud providers, which also had some impact, although relatively minor in terms of sort of the, the above our, our compute layer response. But the, the cloud providers, there is a substantial difference. So on GCP and Azure, when a host stops responding, uh, you can configure health checks that will restart the host automatically for you, but you don't have to. And we don't have them configured. And so on GCP and Azure, when a host stops responding, they let it sit there dead. And that meant that we had hosts that were not responding at all on GCP and Azure, which meant that you couldn't load the website. And our intake was substantially more impacted for that period of time because we had this, this ultimately affected about half our fleet. Um, there was some variability between different locations and cloud providers and all of that, but this affected around half our fleet. But they, they just let the dead node sit there. And so we only had to restart all of the dead nodes in a coordinated order because of how we specifically manage our Kubernetes fleet. And then once we restarted them, had to successfully get them to rejoin actual networking and, and all of those pieces, and then uh, scale up adequately to process our backlog, which substantial, but sort of a well-known set of, of responses from our teams. On AWS, Auto-scaling groups detect that the hosts are unhealthy and automatically terminate and recreate them. This is a problem if you run local disks, uh, which we do in a substantial number of our data stores. We treat them as cache. They can be recreated. But of course, if you do this to half of our fleet at once, we can't really recreate our caches quite that quickly. And just in general, we had a number of places where these things are cache or they're, they're consensus-based data systems of various kinds, Zookeeper, Kafka, various other forms of those things. And those need some, uh, Cassandra's the other big one, those need some level of management to bring back rather than just coming back automatically when you've just lost their data. So really the, the story of recovery is at scale across many products, which are all now competing for resources, fix that. <laughs> so what does that involve? Does it involve scripts to kind of reboot a bunch of stuff or turn down a cluster, turn up a cluster? Uh, did you establish a, a kind of a safe throughput or? We went back and forth on sort of safe throughput. In terms of, of restarting the actual clusters, we established a safe throughput that we then realized wasn't quite accurate. So there's multiple steps to nodes rejoining clusters and, and creating pods on those clusters. And those steps include both the actual creation of the node and then also a bunch of calls to things like Vault to authenticate the node, a bunch of calls to cloud provider APIs in order to actually get 
to, to join the cluster and start receiving work and all of those things. And we thought we had a safe throughput, discovered we were wrong and had to back off at one point. We certainly were in touch with cloud providers throughout who were generally very responsive in terms of increasing rate limits for us and things, but that still had to be done. That was still a coordination activity. That That's sort of the, the infrastructure piece. Then there's a bunch of, well, your service has been damaged. What do you do with all of your live data and all of your, your backup restoration and things along those lines? How did you decide the initial safe throughput? Yeah, uh, my honest answer is, is our compute team went as fast as they could. Yeah. So, so they wrote some scripts and did some restarts on those scripts. You know, most of the throughput was limited by humans rather than by machines. We, under the circumstances, really wanted human beings to be watching pretty much anything that was going on, especially since, again, our own monitoring was impacted. And so we wanted things to be done with at least semi-manual actions. And so the throughput limiter was human beings, and we sort of assumed that as fast as humans could go was a fine rate. Hmm. We did run into some some interesting places where throughput was limited by other things. So like I said, there were there were cloud provider API limits that we ran up against and then needed to get increased. What else was some of the interesting stuff? We definitely sped up as we went along. So we, you know, the first cluster that we recovered went pretty slowly, and then we wrote some scripts to improve that. Some of the tooling that we would normally use to do these kinds of operations at scale was also down because it runs on our infrastructure. So we have some workflow tooling that we would generally use to restore our various metadata databases from backup. That tooling was impacted. So folks threw together some bash scripts and went as quickly as they could. But that was also, you know, a big factor. Um, In terms of recovering one of our metric services, we initially had a Cassandra database that needed to be recovered and our, our starting ETA for recovery was 33 hours which just has to do with the fact that we make topology changes to Cassandra serially and we had built in just wait 10 minutes between those for safety and normal operations. But that meant that our normal operation safety margin meant that it was 33 hours to restore this thing, which was not really an acceptable amount of time. How were you communicating all these efforts and what was going on with your customer support teams and the folks that were communicating front lines with the customers? Because that's that's got to be difficult when you're when you're trying things and they're not maybe quite going as planned or you're understanding things and you your understanding improves and evolves over time. So how was that communication being coordinated and run? Yeah, this is this is a place we really want to improve. We don't think that that was to the standard that we expect of ourselves that our customers expect of us. So just like really upfront, we're not happy with how that went. The things that we did during the incident were obviously we had the public status page up, which was largely managed actually through our direct incident commanders. It's very difficult on a public status page that's sort of, it's it's global for all customers, right? So it, it doesn't show specifics for any individual customer. And it's really difficult on that public status page to convey the nuance of this product is at this state of recovery and this product is at this state of recovery. And we have a better understanding of what's broken, but you're not going to see anything yet for a while. We don't know how long it's going to take. We've never done this before, right? We can't really communicate all of that nuance on a public status page. So so we had more than a thousand tickets filed with our customer support. Any customer who's got sort of a direct relationship with a customer success manager or a technical account manager or any of those kinds of folks, they reached out directly to those people, unsurprisingly. That meant that we had hundreds of customer support people asking some of the same questions. A lot of them... Questions we couldn't answer or questions that we couldn't answer to anybody's satisfaction, right? We had a lot of customers saying, well, how will this affect me personally? To which my answer is, I have no idea. Or, you know, the same way that it does anybody else, right? We didn't coordinate that messaging very well. We certainly tried. We, we built a, an FAQ for our internal customer support folks to read from. We, as the incident went on, sort of built a, a regular cadence where some of our execs would actually sit down with a bunch of these customer support leads and talk with them about where we were at in an engineering sense and and how far along we were. But we certainly heard that our customers did not feel like they got the detail that they wanted. And it wasn't clear, you know, that we were really all hands on deck responding to this and that we were making progress to all of our customers. It's such a, a, a difficult question, right? Because 
Having been in that situation before, one of the things you're asking yourself is, do I really communicate with the customers that we have now discarded the 35th thesis that we had about what the hell is going on in this thing? Or, you know, do we just repeat the same update essentially and, and move on and try and focus on the real thing that matters? Yeah. Or in fact, do I communicate with customers? Okay, we've restored our compute infrastructure and now we have another two layers of infrastructure to restore before you start to see any impact, right? We we don't really have language around that. And so, you know, how do we communicate that we're making progress in a way that's meaningful to customers and isn't doesn't sort of also sound like a cop-out, right? Because to some degree as a customer, if I heard that, that sounds to me like a cop-out. And honestly, one of the things that customers want from you in an outage this broad and this long is they want FaceTime with someone they can yell at. Right. We provided some of that, uh, quite a bit of that. One of the primary things some of the executives involved were doing was getting on calls with customers. Mm-hmm. Kind of just to let them know, yes, of course, we take this really seriously. This is a big deal to us. Because as a customer, that's what you want to hear. I've, I've certainly had to go on a few apology tours before too. So I, I, I totally get that in, in previous roles that I've, I've been in. It's like, it's incredibly important to just kind of over communicate in those situations. But I've also, a friend of mine um, is an incident commander at a pretty large company and they happen to live in a city where their customer support office was located. And so they would go into that office a couple days a week and work out of there just to have like some FaceTime with colleagues. Um, but what happened was their largest incident happened at the same time that they were doing that. And so their customer support folks could overhear everything that they were saying to orchestrate the incident without any of it being filtered to them. And so they were almost doing exactly what you said, which was over communicating with their customers details that they probably didn't need to know um, details that were incorrect and then correct and then incorrect again. And so I think there's just like a, I I bring all this up not to like pass any judgment because I think it is incredibly hard and it's incredibly hard when you're also trying to fix and figure out what's going on. And so like, I, I love how reflective you all have been about that too. Yeah. I mean, the the answer here is we're going to automate a lot more of that kind of status reporting and we're, we're doing some, some training with our customer support organization around sort of being organized, more organized in large-scale incidents so that we don't have every customer-facing person asking the same question or trying to interface with the sort of broader engineering response, but rather having their own sort of channel to, to go through a little bit better. We built that during this incident pretty aggressively, but making sure that we train that organization on incident response, just like we've trained our engineering organization on it. Yeah, it, I think it's interesting to note that Outage communication is fundamentally a communication and as a result inherits the attributes of emotional labor, which is not something that is often even acknowledged or thought about in the kind of corporate communications domain, right? It's very technical, very abstract, et cetera, et cetera. But actually a lot of people just want, ah, I want my thing back or, you know, equivalent, right? Yeah. Believe me, we want to get you your thing back. I promise (laughs) we're working as hard as we can. But of course, you you just need to hear that, right? You need to hear that it's just as important to us or more as it is to you. So one thing that was interesting that was noted was the data hierarchy importance with regards to an outage. Um, I think it's a good reminder that, you know, when everything is an incident, nothing is an incident. It is it is important to prioritize some of these things too. And it, it can be very hard to convince others of internally when an incident happens. But yeah, if you're getting interrupted and playing whack-a-mole with uh, every day, which has significant person costs to it, it looks like, you know, what happened in the incident is you ended up sacrificing other things that were working in order to get some of the live monitoring portions working. Can you talk about that decision process a little bit and what was learned live? Yeah, it was it was less that we sacrificed things that were working. There, there was a tiny bit of that, but it was mostly that we really actively prioritized the live data once we realized that was a concern. So rather than, again, there was so much limitation to our bandwidth because there were so many things that needed compute resources all at once. There were so many things that needed human attention all at once that we just had to choose what do we fix first. And 
you know, I, I don't know that we realized that we needed to do that level of triage for several hours. I think that I was not actually present by the time we need, we realized we needed to do that that level of triage because I signed off around five or six in the morning to get some sleep and then came back again at about two in the afternoon that day. So, so I think that sort of realization that we needed to be really ruthlessly prioritizing happened while I was out. But, you know, in general, the question is, what do customers need first? And I don't know that we, we actually turned anything off except for some very minor things. So we have like this watchdog product that does a bunch of data analysis and tries to determine, you know, what patterns you're seeing and things. That was a thing that we turned off and downscaled pretty early on. We said that we weren't going to do backfill for that until other things had been backfilled because it puts a lot of pressure on other systems when it does its own backfill. So, so we'd done some of that, but it was less that we turned things off and more that we said, don't backfill this until this other piece is done. Gotcha. That makes sense. And my last question, and, and Niall brought this up a little bit at the beginning, we did, you know, we noticed there were a few new job postings after this incident on the on the Datadog site. I, you know, I know you mentioned a, a few of them were there beforehand, I think. Yeah, I, I actually think it's mostly just quarterly planning okay. that, that's caused the postings, not the incident. It's a good opportunity for new hire training. I feel like incidents are like the best form of onboarding. Yeah, it's it's definitely going to go in the new hire training. I'm curious how you plan to socialize this incident with new engineers to the company that, that weren't there internally as it unfolded. Yeah, absolutely. So we we do actually plan to talk about it in directly in new hire onboarding as a case study of sort of how do you think about resilient design. The biggest changes that we're making around the incident are more around how do we design our systems to better gracefully degrade, which is going to be long-term work. You know, the, the sort of obvious quick fix is we turned off unattended upgrades, right? That, that part's easy, root cause solved. But in terms of restoring service to customers more quickly and being able to recover from major, huge problems like this more quickly, most of that comes back to we need to be addressing the resilient design of our systems and the ways that they recover in integrated mode. And so that's, that's where a lot of our focus is. And so as part of new hire onboarding, we're going to be talking to people about that and giving this incident as kind of a, an example of it. Internally, we've done a bunch of presenting to people who saw only their part of the incident or who weren't involved at all with kind of the larger story. Those are all recorded. Uh, my team's actually put together a little bit of a multimedia experience for people around going through that internally with, you know, some some like, how long do you have to learn about this? What are you really interested in? And that has some entry points for people. So there's definitely, we've, we've done some internal development around making sure that this becomes a thing that people really know about. And then like any good uh, engineering team, especially any good SRE team, obviously there are stickers. Uh, I survived the 6 a.m. UTC cron job stickers or uh, something something like that. I think I think the incident the internal incident number and fire may be the theme. <laughs> I always say there's certain incident numbers I'm probably going to be rattling off when I'm when I'm an old lady. They they kind of stick in my head. What did you title this incident internally? Uh, we called it the apt apocalypse internally <laughs> uh, for the fun name, right? Because it's it's apt update. Yeah, you know the incident number is. I, I can just tell you it's nineteen two five four. That's the number. You'll you'll know it for years, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, we'll we'll know it forever, right? So we mostly just refer to it by number. Gotcha. Well, I think we are at a great place to wrap up. Niall, did you have any other questions? Uh, I suppose, Laura, if there's anything else about the future, I mean, we've we've talked about the past uh, a lot and the future a little bit. If there's anything else you wanted to surface about what Datadog was was going to do, uh, this would be an opportunity to do so. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't really think so. Like, like I said, we've got redesigns and reworks and, and all of that that were, in many cases, already underway around more resilient designs and have been accelerated. Some places that we found, we did have some gaps that we want to address. As you might expect, we found some circular dependencies uh, that we need to come back and, and deal with as part of recovering from this. But... You know, honestly, like there's the the quick fix part of this, which is just turning off automated upgrades. And then there's write better systems, which is a thing we were already doing. And there's not really a lot else to do to respond other than, again, fixing our customer communications, practicing our incident response, the stuff we were already doing. 
Well, thank you so much for being on the show, Laura. It was really awesome to, to have you here. Okay, folks, that's all we have time for today. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts today and follow us on Twitter at gettingthere underscore capital G, capital T. To learn more about Heavybit, visit heavybit.com. 